conference in the US Capitol, organised by the Washington Post. The focus is on defence and modern weaponry. Just to, to drill down on this, when you think about the, the future, talk a little bit about how you see AI transforming your business uh, of military sure. power and... The guy in the hot seat is General Joe Dunford, chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff. In our profession, one of the areas that's going to really determine future outcomes is speed of decision-making. And so AI is certainly relevant to speed of decision-making. If you think about cyberspace, uh, AI is critical to being able to implement effective ways of protecting ourselves in cyberspace. I don't think it would be an overstatement when we talk about artificial intelligence to say that whoever has a competitive advantage in artificial intelligence and can field systems informed by artificial intelligence could very well have an overall competitive advantage. I mean, I think it may be that important. I don't think it's something we can say uh, definitively at this point, but it's certainly going to inform and be the preponderance of the, of, of the variables that would go into, hey, who has an overall competitive advantage? AI will be a key piece of it. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. A group of the world's leading scientists and tech experts, including physicist Stephen Hawking and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, have issued a stark warning in an open letter published today. They say autonomous weapons systems, which use artificial intelligence to select targets without human intervention, should be banned. That was more than three years ago, and since that time, the development of autonomous weaponry has continued apace. When you begin to think about what a world would look like where militaries have deployed autonomous weapons in, in large numbers, one of the dramatic changes that we're likely to see is the pace of battle accelerate. Paul Shari is our first guest today as we look at the influence of speed on future conflict. He's the Director of Technology and National Security at the Center for a New American Security. Um, and one of the drivers of militaries pursuing this technology is a fear that others are doing so, and they'll have to do this just to keep pace. This was well captured, I'm going to paraphrase here, but a quote from former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work, who said, you know, if others build Terminators and they don't make as good of decisions as people, but they're faster, how do we respond? And that's kind of a colorful and slightly scary way to look at the problem, which is that even if autonomous weapons maybe don't have all of the reasoning capabilities that humans have in a variety of different contexts, maybe they don't understand ethical principles the same way, these are vitally important things. But if they're faster, that pressure alone could drive militaries to use this technology, but could also shift warfare to a new domain of machine-to-machine -machine interactions that has less human control over what happens in the battlefield, which is problematic in a number of ways. In his new book, Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War, Shari argues for a better understanding of the impact that increased speed is having on decision-making and military capability. The idea of effective human supervision of AI in warfare, he says, may soon be impossible. There are at least 30 countries that employ human-supervised autonomous weapons. These are used for defensive purposes. They're used to defend ships on the high seas or land bases or ground vehicles. 
predominantly from incoming air and missile attacks, where the speed of these threats might overwhelm humans' ability to respond. So they have some day-to-day -day modes of operation where humans are controlling them manually, or there may be some form of automation, but it's what we might think of as semi-autonomous. And the human is, is in the loop, so to speak. So the human is pushing a button to launch a missile against an incoming threat. But they also have automatic modes of operation that then allow them in wartime to be activated if the speed of threats is so much that humans can't possibly respond. This isn't science fiction. This isn't in the future. This exists today and is widely used by at least 30 countries around the globe. These kinds of defensive human-supervised autonomous weapons. So we already know that at least in some aspects of warfare, we're there. Now the question is, is does this model work? And sometimes, you know, you'll hear people kind of throw out this model of, well, we'll just have human supervision and then everything will be okay. You get the automation, you get the benefits of speed and precision, and then you have humans in charge. And the answer is that sometimes it works. In other cases, it's an imperfect model. I'll give an example where it's not working very well at all. And this is in self-driving cars, where right now we're putting cars on the road. They're imperfect, particularly in some settings. They underperform against humans. And the humans are there supervising their operation. Now, that's probably better than no humans involved, but that we can't expect the human to be perfect. Right, so if you're driving down the car, you're driving driving the car down the highway, going 70 miles an hour, and the car does something crazy, it tries to drive into a median or tries to drive into another vehicle. The idea that a human can leap control of this autonomous system in a fraction of a second and take control of it is not realistic. It's not realistic on the highway. It's not realistic in warfare either. And so we've got to also like really account for what can humans actually do. And there are some examples of accidents in war. There were two instances in 2003 with a system of this type called the Patriot Air Defense System, where there were a couple fratricide incidents. They shot down friendly aircraft. And they are, I think, unfortunate examples of the kinds of accidents that can occur even when humans are in the loop or on the loop. There are difficulties as well, aren't there, in testing these kinds of systems without giving the game away to a, a potential enemy? Yeah, there's a whole host of, of challenges. So we can find examples in human society where people operate very complex technological systems to extremely high levels of reliability and low accident rates. Air travel in Western nations is one example of this, that in developed countries, air travel is incredibly safe. Millions of people travel you know, every year on airplanes. So that's a place we've been able to have very high reliability with very complex machines. But one of the things that makes that possible is day-to-day -day operations. So routine operations that happen every day, it's a mixture of humans and machines working together to achieve that kind of reliability. So that's not really possible in war. Militaries, thankfully, don't fight wars every single day. War is a, is a relatively rare event. Now, that's a great thing for human society, but that makes testing these complex systems to a high level of reliability very challenging because militaries can only envision as best they can what might happen in war. They don't get to actually use enemy equipment. Even if they get, you know, maybe they, they steal some enemy equipment or they get a hold of it through you know, the international market and they test it, they may not have the latest version 
They may not have the latest software. They certainly may not have the training and tactics that the enemies have and how they're going to use it. And militaries work very hard to keep some of that stuff secret. You know, they're trying to withhold frequencies that they might operate, you know, their, their radios or their radars. They're trying to withhold certain tactics and, and procedures for use only in wartime to surprise the enemy. So all of this creates an environment where there's a certain level of unpredictability that's inherent to the nature of war. That's okay when it comes to training people. Militaries train their soldiers to be adaptive, be flexible. But machines can't do that. They're going to follow the programming. And so that's a, a real challenge for using these complex automated systems in these kinds of environments because you're going to get surprises and then the machine might do something that you didn't want it to do. What does that mean for the command structure then of an army, of a military operation? Well, one of the principles of the way militaries function today is a lot of militaries have a concept of commander's intent. So what this basically means is that when giving guidance to subordinates, the commanders will tell them, you know, what the specific orders are. You know, seize this hill, take this building down and, and, and occupy it. But they also explain why we want you to do this. What is the intent we're trying to achieve? And this is really important because it allows the subordinates to basically exercise flexibility at the tip of the spear, at the point of military operations on the ground to achieve the commander's intent. So if you put your service members in situations where the enemy's done something quite clever or the environment changes and the rules they were given no longer seem like the best plan actually at the time, right? There's an obstacle in the way. There's a tank battalion between you and your objective. You understand the intent of the commander is the intent to seize this bridge so that, you know, follow on forces can use it to move to a critical strategic city. Whatever the intent is, is it to destroy some, you know, important factory the enemy is using? They understand that so that people can be flexible and adaptable. Achieving commander's intent requires a broader understanding of context requires, you know, the sort of common sense reasoning that people have that machines are just terrible at. So machines are very good at precision. They're very good at executing the same task again and again and again. They're good at things like landing an airplane reliably. That's a good task for a machine. They're good at things that involve machine learning and training systems to, for example, identify objects. But understanding sort of the broader context for what's occurring and then sort of reasoning about what would be a sensible thing to do in this situation, the types of artificial intelligence we have today, they're terrible at that kind of thing. They, they can't even make a good effort at it. And so that's the kind of thing that we really want people in charge of those. One way that someone put it to me once, and I think, I think captures this very well, is in the military, we want people to be in charge of executing missions, of getting the job done. And automation and robotics is used for performing specific tasks. Robots fighting wars. Science fiction? Not anymore. If machines, not humans, are making life and death decisions, how can wars be fought humanely and responsibly? So it's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? That speed, an increase in speed, has obvious advantages in a military situation, but it also has these quite significant dangers attached to it. And that is really sort of the, the essence of the dilemma here, which is that, you know, all things being equal, a world where we move to more automated systems 
and humans are pushed further and further out of the loop of decision-making in combat, it's probably not a good world to live in. A world where machines are making these decisions at a pace that is so fast for humans has tremendous risks. But there are very serious operational and competitive pressures that may drive militaries there anyways. Because it's very hard to get nations to cooperate not to develop a certain military technology or not to deploy it. There are examples historically where that's occurred, but there are also many examples of of failures where nations attempted to regulate aircraft or submarines or or other technologies, and they weren't able to, to reach that kind of cooperation. When I look at this and I try to think about what does the world look like where militaries have deployed these autonomous systems in a variety of spaces, you know, is that safe? Is it risky? I look to the world of stock trading, where we have this today. We have algorithms executing stock trades in milliseconds at speeds that are far too fast for humans to respond. A high proportion of stock trading, people estimate maybe 60 to 70%, is automated today. And then we have accidents that come from that, things like flash crashes that really have continued to occur. And so that's, you know, I think a, a problem when you start thinking about translating that to the military domain, you know, the military equivalent of that, a, a flash war, sounds like a pretty alarming concept. But we have seen, haven't we, uh, particularly with the stock market, we've seen unexpected interactions between algorithms. Potentially, can you see the algorithms of opposing sides interacting in a way that is extremely dangerous for perhaps both uh, both armies? It's not hard to envision it at all. I'll give you a very simple, simple scenario that we could see in the next 10 to 15 years. We're seeing many countries around the globe deploy armed drones. They are rapidly proliferating. There's, you know, well over 16 nations that already have armed drones. China is the main global proliferator of this technology. Over 90% of these armed drones internationally come from China. And a number of countries are working on next-generation stealth combat drones that might be used in more competitive environments. So as these proliferate, what are going to be their rules for engagement if there are loose communications with their human controllers? So right now, these drones operate under human control, but what if someone jams their communications? What do they do? And in many cases, people are using these in contested environments. It might be a you know patch of a sea that's contested between two different nations who are disputing over oil and gas rights or, or, or something else. There are a number of places around the globe where that's the case, uh, particularly in the Pacific. So let's envision a scenario where we got one country flying a drone in this area, another country flying a similar drone. They both claim this territory is theirs. They're both operating autonomously. Maybe they've jammed their communications. One drone is given the order to to not fire at another drone, but to, to threaten it, to paint it with its targeting radar for an air-to-air missile to try to scare it off. The other drone is told to not fire first, but if you're threatened, you're allowed to shoot first, right? So that so that if someone paints you with a radar and you're under threat, you can take the shot to defend yourself. This is going to be expensive drones. That's a hypothetical. It's not real today, but it could very much become real in the next 10 to 15 years. And you could get in a situation where these drones are following their programming. One paints the other with a radar. The other one shoots to defend itself. And then the other one shoots back. And now you've got these drones following their, their programming that get into a shooting war. And maybe that's isolated. Maybe it stays contained. 
or maybe it escalates further and then countries have to figure out how to respond and how to manage that escalation. The book is called Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War. Paul Shari there from the Centre for a New American Security. I'm Anthony Fennell. You're listening to Future Tense, your guide to technology, society and change, exploring the fault lines of rapid transformation. Another leading analyst who's been examining the implications of speed on weaponry and decision-making is Dr Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He's been following fast-moving developments in the Indo-Pacific region, which includes potential flashpoints like the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. And he's convinced that speed, range and precision will be the key determining factors for warfare in the 21st century. When we think back to 1991 and Persian Gulf War, what you saw there was a step change in warfare, primarily as a result of a knowledge edge, the ability of network sensors to be able to detect Iraqi forces where they were and then use precision attack to be able to strike them with great accuracy. And so, therefore, the military campaign, what we had in 1991, was extremely efficient and very quick, and it quickly overwhelmed the Iraqi forces, even though they were quite sizable and capable in, in terms of military force. If you now fast forward to 2019 and heading on into the next decade, it's becoming more and more difficult for a coalition led by the United States to deploy forces into our region, build up their strength and gather all that intelligence and then use that intelligence, that knowledge edge to strike with precision because the adversaries that we're facing have had time to catch up in many respects and they rely on what's known as anti-access and area denial capabilities to deny the ability of the US and its allies, including Australia, the ability to deploy forces into a region. So what we have to rely on then is speed, the ability to strike rapidly at long range and strike with precision, both in time and space. So it's no longer sufficient just to be able to deploy forces next door and then strike at our leisure. We're not going to have that advantage. We're going to have to struggle for knowledge superiority. And so we have to supplant that or, or complement that knowledge superiority with you know, speed of attack and very long range and high precision to be able to counter an adversary's anti-access and air denial capabilities in the 21st century. There are reports at the moment that the Chinese military is developing intermediate ballistic missiles that could strike up to 4,500 kilometres away. Uh, so when we're talking about long range, we're talking about really long range, aren't we? Absolutely. We're talking about hemispheric warfare. The, certainly the Chinese and the Russians are catching up in many areas. In some areas, they've overtaken us. So we no longer have the assured military superiority that we did have back in the 1990s. It's a much more level playing field militarily in many respects, and we're going to have to struggle to gain advantage. And there's no guarantee we will. In a future conflict, we may take sufficiently heavy losses that we can't win. So it's a dangerous period in that sense because our adversaries, principally the Chinese and the Russians, understand our weaknesses. They've had time to study how we fight. They've had time to develop countermeasures. And so, therefore, it's a much more even fight in the 21st century than what it was, what you saw, for example, in the 1991 Persian Gulf War. So high-cost, high-tech precision weapons are needed if Western countries are to retain their fighting capacity. But you've also identified risks in that regard. What are they? 
Well, the risks are that firstly, it takes a long time to acquire these capabilities, in particular the platforms that launch these capabilities. So for example, Australia's acquisition of its attack class future submarines, which will be built in Australia, is slow because we're slowing down the acquisition of that to primarily allow local production. But they are complex, technologically sophisticated platforms. And the first one is not going to arrive until 2035. We won't have a fleet of about five or six until the mid-2040s. So in that interim period between 2019 and the 2040 period, we've got to soldier on with older platforms like the Collins-class submarine. At the same time, our adversaries are moving ahead very quickly with their capabilities. So it could be that we're simply outpaced. And by the time we actually get to some of these new capabilities, they're too late. So this is one of the great dilemmas. We can't go down the low-tech route because that's not a way to win quickly and decisively with low cost. But going down the high-tech route slows down the acquisition process to the point whereby you know, it may be too slow to counter the threats that are coming in the next decade. So somehow we have to find alternative approaches to warfare that allow us to use high-tech capabilities, but use them far more quickly and far more cheaply. And that's not easy, is it? It's not easy. And it's a huge problem for governments to be able to grapple with because their entire approach to warfare, really since the Cold War, has been based around these you know, high-tech, exquisite platforms like what you saw in the Persian Gulf War back in 1991 and uh, what you're seeing now with the acquisition of, of capabilities like the Future Submarine. So somehow we have to uh, have a, an advanced, sophisticated and effective but cheap approach to projecting military power. And one of the solutions that we're looking at is unmanned systems. You've seen use of drones uh, over in the war on terror over Afghanistan and Syria and such like. But the next step in that process would be autonomous unmanned systems that can work as a swarm and organise their operations amongst themselves without necessarily human intervention. We remain on the loop in the sense that we have control over when they attack but the drones themselves make the decisions on how to attack, which targets to attack and so forth. And the potential there for low-cost swarms of drones may radically change how we fight wars in the next two decades. You've warned about what you call the cult of offensive in future war. What do you mean exactly by that term? A good way to describe this is a race to the swift, which means that the adversary knows that to strike second is to basically surrender a significant advantage in the battle. So they'll be racing us to strike first in any military conflict. We understand that, and so we'll be racing them to prevent their first strike. So there's this cult of the offensive. And uh, you know, when we talk about speed and range, one of the key weapon systems of the future is hypersonic weapons. The Russians and the Chinese are making real advances in this capability where they have a missile system that can basically fly faster than five times the speed of sound or Mark 5. They're already deploying some of these capabilities. We're struggling to get an operational capability with hypersonic weapons. So at the moment, the Chinese and the Russians have an advantage in both speed and range. This is a, a key capability gap that Western military forces are rushing to address uh, because they realise the potential disadvantage if all our systems are relatively short range and relatively slow against an adversary's high speed, long range systems. 
A recent decision by the Japanese Navy was to convert or begin converting some of its vessels into essentially small-scale aircraft carriers. What's the thinking there with regard to that? What are they trying to achieve? Uh, the Japanese have got these vessels, what's known as DDH, is called the Azumo class, which look like aircraft carriers, but they're actually classed as destroyers. And the Japanese have decided that the one thing they can do is deploy the B variant of the Joint Strike Fighter, which is the uh, short takeoff and vertical landing variant. So your listeners may be familiar with the Harrier jump jet. Well, this is sort of like the successor to that. And they're going to deploy a small force of these short takeoff and vertical landing Joint Strike Fighters on these ships to give them the ability to better defend the Ryukyus and the, the Senkaku Islands against Chinese threats. So it's not really an aircraft carrier per se, because they're not designed to project offensive power from the sea. It's more a an aviation capability to support forces ashore. Is that an approach that the Australian Navy is likely to take long term? Look, there's a new defence white paper on the horizon, possibly as early as 2020, 2021. I would hope that the Australian government would take a fresh look at our military strategy and our proposed force structure because the strategic outlook that the last white paper, the 2016 white paper, was based upon has moved on considerably since that last paper was written. And a lot of the assumptions of the last white paper no longer hold true. And one of the options we need to think about is how we project power and how we have long-range strike capabilities in the Australian Defence Forces. The ideal solution would be some sort of long-range strike aircraft superior capability to their now retired F-111C. But there's nothing really at the moment available that could fill that capability. There's something on the horizon called the B-21 radar, but that's going to be a true long-range bomber and it's going to be very expensive and the Americans may not be willing to export it. So what are our options then? One option would be to buy a third Canberra-class LHD and put a small force of F-35Bs, the Stobel aircraft, on that. There is risks, though, in doing that. Firstly, it's expensive to do. Secondly, and more significantly, the advantages that the Chinese hold in terms of long-range, high-speed anti-ship weapons could mean that surface naval forces, including carriers, can't survive within anti-access air denial environments. And so we may not be able to get such ships close enough to their targets for those F-35Bs to be effective. So government really has to make some good analysis on just what are our options to project power at long range and high speed, because that's a clear capability gap in our forces. It's a hole in our capabilities that needs to be filled quite urgently. Just finally, I can't let you go without getting your thoughts on the ultimate futuristic sounding weapon, the electromagnetic railgun. There were reports at the beginning of this year suggesting that the Chinese Navy may have successfully developed one. Uh, first of all, what actually is a railgun? How does it work? Well, a railgun is sort of like a very advanced type of cannon that instead of using explosive forces to project a shell, it uses supercharged electromagnetic forces to accelerate a projectile at very high speed out of the cannon and at very long range and high speed against a target. It's the next generation of artillery piece, if you like. The Chinese have 
been determined to have deployed one of these things on one of their ships. It's a landing ship, it's not a warship, and we don't really know exactly what stage of testing it's at. The Americans uh, did some testing on electromagnetic railgun technology and they were having real problems in terms of the barrel melting from the heat generated by the electromagnetic energy. So they've gone down a slightly different path with what's known as hypervelocity projectiles, which are a different type of artillery shell that's fired from the cannon. But if the Chinese actually have cracked the secret of electromagnetic railguns, then that potentially gives them a huge advantage because they can put firepower at very long range, and we're talking several hundred kilometres, at very high speed, you know, well into the hypersonic realm, probably about Mach 10 or 10 times the speed of sound, at very low cost. And that could potentially give them a significant advantage. But I would emphasise that we don't yet know how advanced they are in their research, but clearly they are interested in doing this. Well, Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, thank you very much for your time and for your insights. My pleasure. And Dr Davis is the Institute's Senior Analyst for Defence Strategy and Capability. We also heard today from Paul Shari at the Centre for a New American Security. Karen Savanovitz is my co-producer here at Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. Cheers. <laughs>